we really need to get producers to start to work with researchers like you and our, you and myself to say, what do we need? Because I think the best way for us to develop this uh, precision technology is from the ground up, not from the top down. Because we can develop a lot of things here at the university and it not really have that good of an application. We need to ask our producers, what are your biggest needs? And then try to identify ways to address that using precision ag. And I think if we do that, then we identify ways that we can help reduce the labor needs for whatever it is, using these precision tools to the best degree possible. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like EveryPig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Minitube, the worldwide leading supplier of systems for the field of assisted animal reproduction. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Gestal. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, Gestal manufactures the original wireless standalone swine feeding system. Designed by pork producers for pork producers. They are simple, reliable, and provide peace of mind 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Gestal is not just manufactured by an equipment company, but by a family pork production business with a slat-level understanding. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Ken Stalder, who is a professor at Iowa State University. How are you today, Ken? I'm doing great. Good. Well, we're glad to have you today on our on our show. Um, I think before we get started, if you wouldn't mind just giving a little bit of background for our listeners as to who you are and, and where you're at today. Sure. I grew up on a diversified farm in Southeast Iowa many moons ago. Um, went to Iowa State originally thinking I'd get back home and farm, but you know, life changes a lot of things. And uh, so that didn't happen. And that was the uh, that occurred about the first time there was a real farm crisis here in the U.S. And I knew that the home farm went to support my sister's family and my parents and a third family. So I continued on, got my BS in animal science and went on to be a livestock production specialist for a large co-op in Northeast Iowa. And so got my interest in obviously swine production, but had a fair amount of, of feedlot beef and 
and dairy accounts up there as well. So that's where I got a, a little bit of taste of applied nutrition, uh, but just and conducted some uh, on-farm trials. And that got me kind of interested in uh, the research side of things and made me decide to go back and get my advanced degrees. And so I got a master's in uh, agriculture from Western Kentucky University. My mentor there was Dr. Gordon Jones, who's a animal breeder by training and happened to be good friends with Dr. Lauren Christian, my advisor here at Iowa State. And that's how we made the connections. And uh, I came back to Iowa State and did my PhD with Dr. Christian. And then I spent eight years on the faculty at University of Tennessee, in a similar role that I have here. Uh, in 2003, I came back to Iowa State to, to work as a extension swine specialist and research at the time and then teaching was added on to that later so that gives you a brief background of how I've become to come to the place where I'm at today. Wonderful yeah I think when I think of of Ken Stalder I think lameness right that's probably the thing that I think you're most well known for with your research um, but sow, sow production, sow longevity um, all of those are key pieces uh, that I know that you've spent your years doing your research and, and promoting with the industry. Um, so as we talk about sows, because I know you and I could spend all day talking sows and, and, and so forth. One of the things that, that you and I have discussed over the years is just this, and, and I've heard it from others as well, is this discussion of how do we define a sow's productivity? Is it pigs per sow per year? Is it pigs per mated female per year? Um, years ago, I know I was sitting in a national pork board conference and it was pigs per sow's lifetime. So could you maybe explain a little bit about the differences and, and where you think we need to go as an industry? Right, right. Well, traditionally, people have focused on pigs per sow per year or pigs per mated female per year. And that has some value, but I also think it's a value that gets manipulated quite severely, uh, depending on which firm you go to. Pigs per sow per year and pigs per mated female are probably okay if you're just looking within your own operation or your own system. It's when we start to compare outside of that, and particularly when we try to compare ourselves to our European counterparts that I think we really get in trouble with that value. And the reason why is it's calculated in so many different ways. And it depends on when your females enter the herd, particularly the, the, the bread guilt or the guilt that comes into your herd, whether you happen to enter as they come into guilt development or so many herds when they get tagged, that's when they enter the herd. And so that can be manipulated a lot of ways. The other thing that really bothers me is when you dig into this calculation, you can have a really high pigs per sow per year if you enter that guilt just as she enters the farrowing crate. And then if you call her immediately after weaning that first litter, your PSY is going to be inflated. And that's one of the big reasons that I'd like to see us as an industry move away from that and more into a, a pigs produced per sow lifetime. And if you're one of those that's concerned that we might have uh, females that lag in the herd or, or hang around doing nothing and, and non-productive days move up, 
maybe the best value for you then is pigs per sow lifetime or pigs per day of herd life. So you adjust it for that herd life or, or her lifetime, whichever, if you've got a birth date for that works. And so I think that that's a, a value that has real economic value and is much more difficult to uh, manipulate. So you look good. It is what it is. And um, so your herd will be defined much more uh, cleanly or much more appropriately, I think. So I like that value. Yeah, I like the idea of using the herd day in there. I've, you know, we've talked before about pigs produced in a sow's lifetime, but as we know, a lifetime for a sow may, may vary from third parity to seventh parity. And so creating a way to get that average um, definitely I think would help help the industry rather than just going straight pigs per sow lifetime. Yeah, yeah. So it, it really penalizes that sow that does stick around as not that consistent breeder that you want. And I think, yeah, you're right. It has value that way as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, the, and so when we think about the sow productivity, um, where I go back to always is guilt development. Sure. And, you know, we do struggle with guilt developments to be honest. And a, and a lot of times, particularly right now, when our industry is dealing with a, a big PERS break um, going through the United States, we see guilt developers where, you know, we're going to stop bringing guilts in for a while. Um, and, and that generally is when I start to hear these conversations about sizing and multiplication. And certainly more recently, we've had conversations about, do we slow guilts down to, to have them more mature? You know, what's that look like? And anytime we say slow guilts down, um, people who are involved with that multiplication start to, to panic about size. So how do we size multiplication correctly? Well, I think over the years, we've tended to size our multiplication for when things go perfectly. And anytime we deal with any production system that is of any size and has multiple farms, I don't think that's uh, workable in the long term. And that's because things never run perfectly, right? We're always trying to deal with a sow herd that breaks with purrs or God forbid, we're like China and get ASF. And all of a sudden we need a lot of gilts in a short period of time. And then our multiplication system's not set up for that. What happens then is we end up having to breed anything that's female and is, you know, uh, any degree of soundness, as long as she can walk and take her. Well, that has ramifications later, both in the sow herd and downstream when you take her uh, offspring that then wonder why we have more problems in grow finish with feet and leg soundness. Well, it's because we had to keep everything up here and the sow's influence on that. Rather, I'd like to see us, see us to start to size our multiplication based on when we need the most gilt. So how, what, what's, our, what's our multiplication look like if we sized it for the, the worst events possible that we might have? And that way we still have room to keep the maybe the best 70% of gilts, even in the worst case scenario. And then when we get back to what would be more normal, 
times in that herd where we've got the extra gilts, we can really do two things. We either ratchet down and keep the very best gilts, right? Or maybe we're in a, a stage where we need to expand and we can do that. Or maybe we need to go back to the sow herd and really practice some more intensive culling of sows that are less than desirable, but we still have our gilt development sized where we can do that. So there's a lot of advantages to having that gilt development sized a bit bigger than what we do today. Now, we'll get pushed back from the bean counters that say, well, there's a cost to that. Well, there's a cost to everything, right? There's a cost to sizing that bigger, but there's also a cost over here of keeping those females that were less than desirable as well. And so I think there's a balance there. And the balance is probably different for every operation, but I think we need to start looking at maybe increasing that multiplication that will allow us more flexibility on the guilt development side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That's the conversation I hear so many times is the economics, right? We don't want to raise expensive animals, you know, genetically elite animals, and then send them to market because there was not a need. Uh, but at the same time, you're absolutely right. We've, we sometimes will then be forced to take animals that we didn't really think fit our criteria in the barn, but yet we needed the animals to, to address, you know, sow inventory levels. Right. So are there any tips to how you can start to think about the economics a little bit differently? Um, because obviously we know gilts are expensive to, to raise, but, um, you know, how do we justify having a few extra gilts around? Have you done any economics around that? Um, a little bit, you know, trying to look at the difference in productivity of older sows versus younger sows. And, you know, a lot of times if we have a productive sow herd, we can keep those sows in for a little longer than maybe we anticipated. And that does help us with our inventory, right? But in cases where you don't, um, it's really hard to sit back here and say what it needs to be for each herd. But, you know, typically, if you uh, increase your ability to, uh, or your multiplication, I don't know, care what it is, if you increase the, the gilt population or multiplication two to 3%, typically isn't going to kill you on the backside and having those extra gilts will be advantageous. And I think it's going to be even more important, Laura, as we move forward with things like Prop 12 and those kind of things, people are really going to start to monitor uh, things like uh, the number of, of, of sows that are lame or number of sows that are down and the number of sows that have to be euthanized. And the better female we keep up front, the less of those issues we're going to deal with on the backside. And so how, how you evaluate that economically is a more difficult question, but it's going to become more of a reality as we move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. And obviously every business is different as to, to where their value is. So it's going to change. But one of the the questions I have on this is we're talking about maybe sizing that multiplication when we get down to guilt selection, the number I always heard was like 85% of your guilts you should select. 
as mm. as options to go into a herd. Is that a fair number or do you have a different number in mind? Well, it kind of depends what what 85% of what. It kind of depends on where you start, right? Mm-hmm. And if I go back to the gilts I've raised in a barn, you know, the entire group, I'm not sure I'd want to dip below 70% of that entire group. So that includes your slows that are in that barn, the animals that have some defect, and then all the way down to what you select to go to the guilt development. So I kind of try to use that number. And I, I think that if you look at that truly and account for the slows and everything, 70, 70% is usually a pure, pretty realistic number. Yeah, that's good to know. That's something to, to continue to challenge our, our audience and to think about, you know, because typically isoenes, right? We're, we're selecting out the ones that already have deformities, but you're right, the slower growers and so forth still are going to be in there, even if they're eight pounds at weaning or 10 pounds or whatever your cutoff is. And the other thing I'd like to think about is, you know, if you have an internal multiplication program and you compare that to when you would buy it, the gilts from your genetic supplier, if you don't want them dipping below whatever value that is, and you think over here, when I'm raising them myself, I can go further than that. I think you're fooling yourself because if you don't want them to go that far, you should be willing to maintain those standards as well over here in an internal multiplication program. And we need to be sure and hold ourselves accountable to the same criteria, I think. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. One of the other things that it's a little bit hard for us to do is, is to really think about, well, we're selecting that female, right? So right around puberty, we're selecting her. We're going to bring her into the herd. She looks phenotypically correct, structurally sound. But what does she offer us in the end, right? So, you know, we're not really following offspring as well as we should. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. I think that's an area that's a big opportunity for our industry as a whole. As we get to use more things like uh, electronic identification and we put together these new tools that everybody is coming up with, I think it's gonna be easier to follow the offspring and and be able to relate that back to the the sow that 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 animal was uh, born to. I think that'll bring us some advantages from several aspects. It's not just the individual sow, right? It's what parity was she? Are there parity differences that we can account for and uh, take advantage of that downstream, but just do a better job following those and tracing it back to the, the sow farm that those pigs were from, tracing it back to the individual animal and doing more things on not only an individual pig basis, but related back to that individual sow that those pigs were derived from. And we'll be able to manage them much more appropriately, I think, if we can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a conversation we have a lot as well. From a research perspective, we know it's important right. to, to track this female but or this offspring from this female. But when we get down to the economics from the producer standpoint, I, I think you made an interesting point was, well, if we know that they're from a certain parity versus these other pigs over here. You know, we, we don't really know 
all the ramifications. And so maybe there's nutritional things we can do, management practices and so forth that could help. So I, I think you raise a good point. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I'd like people to think about how could we practice parity segregated production without actually doing it? And to do that, you need to know what, what parity your pigs came from and whatnot and how to manage those better. And I think there are some unique things about piglets that are, that are from that first litter gill versus older sows. And what can we do to make them perform more alike? And I think we've learned a little bit about that through parity seg, but I think we have a ways to go as well. Yeah, I agree. I think even, you know, just from, from my discipline of nutrition, we have a lot of work that we can still do there. And as we start to look at microbiomes and how all that interplays with health and disease, I, I think you're right. We're just kind of touching the top of it and there's so many more opportunities there. Um, but one of the things that I'm sure some of our audience is thinking about is, well, okay, the technology is great. I can tattoo those pigs or tag those pigs and um, manage them a little bit differently in the barns but that requires somebody to put a tag in an ear or that requires somebody to, you know, be there on a wean day and separate these pigs out, you know, when they're going into the barn. So we know that labor is really a challenge. So how do we start to incorporate precision ag and, and help with the labor offset? Yeah, I think that's a really challenging thing that's going on right now. And, and something that's challenges on the research side and then as we develop things on the research side, challenging us to uh, implement that in a practical sense. I think the first big challenge is uh, for all of our rural communities need much better rural broadband access. And once that becomes available, the opportunities are going to really explode because right now we don't have that pipeline that we can deliver data and communicate back and forth from places that have good internet access, like here in Des Moines and the metropolitan area uh, surrounding Des Moines, you get out in rural Iowa, that, that really doesn't exist very well right now. And I think it's coming, you know, the government has said that that's a priority to get rural broadband to all 99 counties. And then once that occurs, I think that that will really start to allow us to do more things. But that said, one of the challenges that I think we really need to get producers to start to work with researchers like you and our, you and myself to say, what do we need? Because I think the best way for us to develop this uh, precision technology is from the ground up, not from the top down. Because we can develop a lot of things here at the university and it not really have that good of an application. We need to ask our producers, what are your biggest needs? And then try to identify ways to address that using precision ag. And I think if we do that, then we identify ways that we can help reduce the labor needs for whatever it is, using these precision tools to the best degree possible. And uh, we need to get better at that from the university standpoint. And then we need to get more of our company uh, uh, advocates to tell us what those needs are and maybe not be so secretive about the, the challenges that go on. And in that way, we do a better job 
developing the tools that actually they have a need for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's something that's important is our technology is, is so broad and there's been so many advances and it gets to the point almost where it's data overload, exactly. right? So um, it's not uncommon. We always have SOW information coming into a, into a database and then we start getting down to the barn level and then we have maybe water measurements being recorded, temperatures being recorded. And so how do you help a producer sort through that information to figure out what's important and what's not? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what's going to happen here is the person we have on the farm at the flat level in the future is going to be much more technology savvy to help us implement some of these things. And to the degree possible, those mundane things that we do every day, try to let technology take over as much of that as possible. But that's also going to mean that our employees of the future are going to demand higher salaries and that sort of thing. So we need to be prepared for that. But the things we're gonna ask them to do are gonna be quite different as well. So by that, I mean, they're gonna have to be able to keep all of this technology running at the slap level. So the person that does that is much different in my mind than the people that we have that are typical barn workers today. So as we move forward, they'll need more training to be able to work on things like that and to implement this, what I call a fire hose of data that's coming to everybody and help us sort out for an individual herd, which one of those things are are most important for them. Are there any concerns if we start talking about identifying workers that are very technology savvy that we lose the animal husbandry skills You know, do you see that as an issue? Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it still takes people that have those good stockmanship skills, okay? Those are, first of all, the people that have good eyes, that good observation skills, that see everything in a barn. And you and I have both seen those workers that just know almost everything, whether it's a a grow finish operation or a salad. They just get it and they see things like that. Well, once they see it, they really have to have that knowledge basis to know what to do with whatever they're seeing. And it can be as simple as to tell the manager, or it might be as complex as, hey, I see what's going on here. Maybe it's a sow having fairing difficulty and I intervene immediately. And then that last thing that that skill, those, that person needs is uh, an action attitude. If they know what to do, they see it, but yet they say, oh, well, I might leave this go till later. That's not gonna be an effective stock person. And the best example I give for this is, you might see a sow that has uh, difficulty farrowing, but it's three o'clock and normally that's quitting time for a a lot of barn workers. But if you're the person that says, oh, I see she's having difficulty, I want to stay and make sure and help her make sure she gets through everything all right and don't worry about quitting time. Those are the kind of people that I really want to hold on to almost at all costs because they'll end up making you more money than you ever realized. And and whether I pay for that over time or whatever, it, it just is worth that. And so those are the three skills 
And I think they're going to be needed regardless of whether uh, they have the greatest technology skills. The ideal one that would have both those skills and have that technology uh, information back here to use as well. But that may not happen. But that person that has those good stockmanship skills will be a good employee forever in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's something that some some farms have thought about too is, well, maybe we hire two or three people that are technology savvy that can go through and you know fix if there's any issues with you know network communications and so forth within the barn. And then you hire in the other individuals that are really good with the animal husbandry. And so that might be the option, not necessarily that way for grow finish. If you, you know, have one person for three or four or five barns, but um, you know, maybe in that situation, it's, if you have multiple barns, you hire one person who can go around and manage the technology and train people at least to identify, you know, if the computer's saying, Hey, this pig is not eating that they recognize how to address the alerts and, and move on. Is that your thought or do you think differently than that? You know, the sow herd, I think you're spot on, you know, that's going to take a a different team and that mix of people. And uh, I think we'll find our balance for every sow operation. The grow finish, I really like your approach there. Having that everyday person kind of be that stock person that's really savvy but we're going to have to figure out ways from a biosecurity standpoint to allow that technology trained person to go in there and fix electronics that need fixing because that barn worker that we have there that's every day doing all the work i'm not sure we can expect them to be able to do the things they do every day and also be able to go fix an electronic feeder or Uh, fix these uh, new fancy ventilation systems that are out there and that can tell you everything that you want to know about that barn. I just don't think those two people, two skill sets necessarily will be compatible. Yeah, you may find the occasional one and you're going to want to hold on to that person, but by and large, I, I don't think that's the same person. Well, and from my experience, when just running a research, we need to finish barn. If the, if the electronics went down, that was really time consuming. And so I needed somebody else in the barn doing the care and, and, you know, making sure everything else was working like it's supposed to, like doing the daily activities. And so you couldn't have one person trying to manage it all because, you know, they could easily be doing 12, 16 hour days just trying to get it all done. And that's that's if it's an easy problem to fix. Exactly. Just so, physically not possible, is it? Right. I don't think from point. a time perspective, right, it, yeah. it's going to be a feasible option. Right. What about training? So, you know, one of the challenges we see today is, you know, obviously labor is an issue. And, you know, we are getting individuals in who have no animal husbandry experience. Um, and so you're talking about well-trained people. What are a few key things that you think we should be doing as far as trying to get people trained to be observant right. and, and action-oriented? The biggest thing I'd like to see is a better onboarding process and, and maybe our new people, especially if they differ in experience, 
So you identify what experience level they have and what they need and let them shadow the good people you already employ and let them kind of see how they do things to train, to be a better training mechanism. And don't expect that that's going to happen in a week. And so I think that little longer shadowing and training period is needed. After that, I'm a big believer in uh, providing everybody some level of training on an annual, at least an annual basis. If you can do it more frequently than that, particularly with the, the um, what we learned last year with COVID, we can do a lot of things virtually. If you can provide a virtual training or, or let them sit in on podcasts like we're doing right now more frequently and encourage that some way, I'm a big believer in, in that continuing education component. So those would be the two things I'd like to see uh, more done more frequently or done better on a widespread basis. Sure. Yeah, those are good, good examples and suggestions. One of the things I was thinking about is if we go back to guilt selection and you have a new employee and you're trying to, to train them to, you know, check the boxes, right? Are the feet sound? Are the legs straight? Um, having an audit of some sort where you have, whether it's a production manager or whomever, you know, periodically doing that, I think is really important. One of the, the things I would see is if we were doing visual observations for body condition, for example, in gestation, after a while, your eyes can start to trick you. And so, you know, having somebody come in periodically and validate, I think is always really good in training and even post training period. And I've even seen it, Laura, where you work with your genetic supplier to make sure you both kind of are in agreement of what constitutes uh, a female that's adequate for the herd. And that keeps you from getting in conflict with the, that genetic supplier often too. And also don't be afraid to challenge them. And so I think that works kind of both ways. So some way I agree with you about the validation point. I use the term we get barn blind and we don't see what we don't see. And using that either validation or that checkup by uh, your genetic supplier, however you choose to do it, I just think it's good to do periodically. And I'd like to see that done at least annually, if not twice annually. I think what happens beyond that is, is a good point to recognize as well. When that person comes in to check up on you, you have broader discussions than just what you're there to do. And I think that brings an educational opportunity that we need to foster more of as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think that works well for all disciplines, right? We know, we know veterinarians need to be in the barns for the veterinary client patient relationship, right. but the nutritionist, um, it's easy to sit in a room and formulate a diet. Um, but what happens at the barn level might be absolutely different than what you formulated that diet to do along that same lines, right? Somebody decides they want to change body condition on the farm, so they might change feeding levels and so forth. And so while biosecurity is important and, and critical, still bringing those people in periodically, is, it's going to be a, a very big key to your success at running a south farm. One example to support exactly what you're saying. I was on a south farm a couple of weeks ago, 
and they were checking their electronic sow feeders for uh, delivery, so de diet density. And they found out that day they were about 10% off. Well, that's a big deal. You know, you can get sows out of condition either way pretty quick with the, with the feeder not delivering what you think it is that way. So that alone is, is worth, you know, that person coming in and checking up on in the, in the nutritionist case. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, wonderful. So as we think about some things that we can practice today, you've given us a lot of good ideas from thinking about how we're moving precision technology in and certainly how to think about measuring sow productivity uh, at the farm level. What would be a couple of key points that you'd like our audience to take away from our discussion today? Well, the older I get in this business, I recognize the more that people matter. And we can have all the big ideas we want, but if it doesn't get done at the slat level, that's not a lot of value. So key point I'd like to see is better training and continuous training for people, whether that's onboarding or continuing ed, is let's not lose sight of that. Let's maybe ramp that up and make that a priority for the farm. So I'm big on the education side of things. And then the other one is uh, the right sizing multiplication. If we really want to make a dent in reducing our replacement level, improving uh, sow mortality, those sort of things, we need to do a better job in getting the correct and more ideal female in the breeding herd. And that often is going to take more females, more F1 females that uh, get into the commercial herd and making more of them so that we can do a better job in, in selecting the females before they get uh, put into the herd in the first place. So that'd be the two things I'd like to focus on. Mm -hmm. Those are great, great key points and suggestions for our audience. It is time to our famous three. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high, healthy, registered purebred swine on the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. That's G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. As we wrap up today, Ken, you know, there's three questions we like to ask of all of our guest speakers. Um, the first one we like to ask is, what would be one of your, or a couple of your go-to pig resources? Well, I mentioned to you, one of the things that I tell students that make a good reference source is this book called Pig Signals. There's a series of four, and I think these are just generally good production management references for that person to have on their bookshelf to be able to go to. And there's one for sows, one's for nursery pigs. There's a general book, and I believe there's one for grow finish. So that, that's the first one. The second one that we're, I'm in the process of working on a group to revise, but I found this book called the sow improving her efficiency. It's one of the few books that implements economics to about every chapter. And 
you find very few pig production books that do that. And we're really striving hard in the revision of this book to maintain that mentality. So while this is an older book, I think it does a good job of making you think about the economics to everything you do. And so that's the two production books, the reference books that I really like. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because putting an economic value on the changes that we make at the South Farm can be really difficult because we can think at the South Farm level and then we can also obviously think all the way to our offspring going to market. And so um, I know in myself, I've challenged my own self trying to figure out what the real economic value is if I make this diet change or we improve this, this metric. So very good. I think those are great resources. Um, so the other question we like to ask is, are there any books that you're reading for pleasure that you would like to recommend to the audience? Yeah, right now I'm reading a book that's titled Nuts. And that whole uh, response, Nuts, is based on a World War II general's response to uh, the German commander to surrender. And that, uh, that general's response back to that commander was Nuts. And a guy named Vincent Speranza has titled his book on that. And Vincent is important in this respect. Uh, there was a long-held story about a uh, World War II uh, person, uh, fighter, from America going back uh, behind uh, our lines and going to see his buddies that were in the uh, field hospital. Well, his buddy wanted something to drink. And of course, it was an alcoholic beverage. And they happened to be fighting in the Battle of the Bulge. And Vincent went up to Bastogne, where this occurred in Belgium, and went to all of the town and found this bar that happened, the, the beer tap worked. Well, Vincent had no glasses to take anything back to his buddies. So he happened to fill his helmet full of beer and uh, later on in life, he went back to Bastogne as a veteran and was telling the story to the local pub. And the bartender goes, you're the one. And they said, you're the one. And Vincent didn't know what that meant. And everybody assumed that was an old story that, he, uh, you know, the, that the veteran took the beer back to his buddies. And it, it was indeed true. And they actually named a beer after him called Airborne Beer. And they serve it in a little ceramic helmet after, after him doing that. So that book is a wonderful story about Vincent Speranza and his experiences during World War II. And I'm a history buff, and I really love those kind of books. So if you're a history buff and enjoy World War II books, I think you'd enjoy that as well. Yeah, such an amazing story. So much fun to to listen to, you know, what happens, right? Who would have thought yeah. something as simple as getting some beer for your buddies would would come back you know, years later as, as a brand of beer? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, very good. So the last question we like to ask our speaker is really around, if you think about somebody who you define as successful in your profession, what's a key characteristic or trait that they possess that you think helped them become successful? Yeah. The people I've tried to just surround myself with over the years, Laura, all of those that I really try to 
emulate a bit. They've been technically sound across a broad number of areas. So they can walk into most any place and start to get that feel for the things that need to be improved upon. It didn't have to be just breeding and genetics or nutrition, or they could spot health things. I'm not saying that we need to become veterinarians and recommend uh, you know, anything in terms of treatment, but we need to all be able to go in there and recognize when, when pigs are sick and that sort of thing. So I guess I would say really technically sound. The other thing I think that you really get more buy-in if you come in with a humble attitude and not, not say is that, that, you know, that, oh, you have to do it this way. But if you go in there and you provide ideas for them to think about, and then they start to implement those and you get buy-in a lot easier. And then I think the final thing that I think that really makes that person really effective, besides being technically savvy and being humble, is also the ability to talk to that person in the barn or a faculty person like you equally as well. So if they can be able to, to cross all of those bridges, that's the kind of person I think that I try to emulate and that I find very effective in a variety of settings. So those would be the kind of three things that I look for. Wonderful. Definitely have to, to keep that in mind as, as people move forward in their careers and are thinking about what they can do to, to have self-improvement. Right, right. Well, once again, um, for our audience, this is Dr. Ken Stalder from Iowa State University. And again, we do want to thank you for your time today. It was great discussion and very good insight. Well, I want to thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed this. Uh, if I can help in other ways, uh, you or the audience don't hesitate to contact me. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.